Blog Talk Radio. Before we normally introduce our political panelists and analysts, 
we have a guest on the phone already with us. We have Brother Jihad um, Adu Mumin. He's from the National Jericho Movement. We'd like to bring him in, and we'd like to welcome you, Brother Jihad, to um, Africa on the Mode. Welcome. Welcome, Brother Lee. Peace, everybody. Uhuru. Good, because you know, Brother Jihad, you were one of the participants at this recent historic event dealing with Richmond First Pan-African International Festival of Culture and Unity. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. Jericho movement deal with political prisons and what have you. I would like for you to share some thoughts and ideas on the message that was displayed at the event by you and your organization and what you think the world need to know and hear about what's going on in your movement. So you can give us some thoughts yeah. and some reflection in the program and some thoughts you think is important for our people to know about. So the mic is yours right now. All right. Thank you, my brother Lee, and thank you, listening audience. And, again, I say peace to everybody. Um, yeah, I was there. I thought I was excited about the event. I had a family issue. I had to leave unexpectedly. But um, from from being, first of all, the fact that um, our brother Lee has organized such an event, you know, to keep in live the spirit of our Pan-Africanism, the fact that we are Africans in the diaspora here in a place called the United States of America, these type of events, and now this is being the first and we anticipate next year and the years to follow and all the 364 days in between us working together and building our unity. Um, The fact of the matter is that this event, along with all the other things that's going on in the United States where sisters and brothers are trying to to keep alive our our unity, our, our threads and connections that we have with one another, it bleeds into a whole beautiful picture of ongoing struggle. Uh, last uh, Saturday weekend here in in Washington D.C., uh, my son and I we participated in the Black is Back uh, uh, annual. Uh, it's a coalition of organizations now, about 20 organizations or so across the United States um, that come together in the spirit of, of Pan Africanism and recognizing the importance of unity and building power amongst Africans, black people in the United States. In that event, and then the event that, that prior to that, that uh, our first Pan-African festival here in Richmond, Virginia, and all the events that we may or may not even know of that's constantly going on in the United States plays a very, very, very important role in our ongoing unity in a climate that is constantly tearing down and tearing us apart from one another in this capitalist system that divide and conquer, chasing the carrot, individualism that causes us not to be united in the ways that we should and, you know, those type of things going on. So I, you know, so I just wanted to applaud Brother Lee and everybody that was involved and and how important these events are. Sometimes we may look at the numbers and we will say, well, there's only 70 people here. There's only 100 people here. There's only this and that. When we put this on a broad, uh, broader stage and look at all the events that's going on and all the efforts that's going on from different organizations, some that may not even know of each other's efforts is vitally important because over a period of time, throughout these callings and these events, we can slowly start to build stronger connections and bridges with one another. So it does count. It does matter. It is, it is very important for our very survival here in the United States. So for the third time, applauding Brother Lee for bringing that together. I'm the chairperson of 
the National Jericho Movement, an organization that was started when I myself was still in prison, uh, 1998, an organization that championed the cases of those freedom fighters and those community activists, those revolutionaries that put themselves on the front line and court cases, federal or state cases, uh, from their activities in our movement to to further gain our independence and self-determination and freedom in the United States. Many of these sisters and brothers are forgotten, many of them from organizations such as the Republic of New Africa and and the uh, American Indian Movement. Uh, most of the Puerto Rican nationalists, not all of them, have been released. Members of the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army. That's still language in prison now going on um, up to 50 years now, for real. And so we are an organization that focuses on um, campaigning to get them out of prison, to tend to their medical and health needs while they're in prison, all the way from commissary to getting third-party doctors to tune in if they have different medical situations, to getting lawyers to see them, to getting family members to visit them. That's what the National Jericho Movement uh, does, and you can easily look that up at www.thejerichomovement.com for that information. So I'm located here in Chesterfield, uh, Richmond, and um Look forward to always participating in the events that Brother Lee and anybody else puts on, so I'll be listening to what the other guests have to say. I will say about political prisoners, though, it's a very unique issue because traveling all around the world, and Brother Lee, I know you can probably bear witness to it through your international travels, too. When you raise the question of political prisoners, domestic political prisoners in the United States, it's almost like, what? As if the United States doesn't have none, as if the United States doesn't have issues of oppression, racism, and degradation, exploitation, and all the other things that go along with living here in the diaspora here. And those that stand up against it in one way, fashion, or another find themselves in prison, and they don't exist. They're just just not counted. So our position is, whatever your organization is, for those that are listening, uh, in some type of way that you can give some type of support, or even and that support could just be in a mere acknowledgement of who these political prisoners are. And if you don't know who they are, you can go on our website and see who these remaining Panthers are and members of other organizations, anti-imperialists, or weather underground, all these people that's in prison still. You can see who they are. You know, it's like back in the 50s and 60s, it seemed like you just using the Panther Party as an example. We are kind of like a holistic organization. Here we are in the community, you know, dealing with education, we had our own free health clinics, mostly dealing with uh, sickle cell anemia, of course, back at that. But there's all types of issues, our own uh, uh, clothing banks, you know, breakfast programs and and community patrols against police violence, more holistic. But now this, this seems like things have become more specialized in the sense that we deal with the issue of political prisoners. This organization deals with this issue. Another organization deals with this. It's almost like a doctor. Back in the day, you used to have a guy walking around with a black bag coming to your house tending to all of your ailments. Now you have specialists, you have a gynecologist, you neurologist, and this, this specialist and that specialist. So community organizations are very much the same way as I see it. And it's, so that means it is so important that we have this network with one another, this unity with one another, so that all of our issues, which are quite a bit, can be addressed in a unified way. So one organization does not look to do that anymore as if it ever did. But now, you know, we specialize in different things and our unity coming out to these um, events as Brother Lee has organized and other events that you may hear about to rent some type of support. 
So what I would like for everybody to do, if it is possible, those that are in different organizations and you have the capacity or, or the voice in that organization, that at least, at least you can get in tune with who the political prisons are and put a little slice on your website, just their honorable mentioning who they are so that we can make sure that their legacy doesn't die because with all due respect to everybody listening, it is somewhat uh, hypocritical and, and undermining of our own efforts if we do not support those that have been on the front line in the past because that sends a clear signal to anybody that stands up today, tomorrow, or next week against police violence, against uh, the uh, climate change, environmental issues, against homelessness, to stand up to, to rectify anything in any militant fashion, and you find yourself incarcerated because of that, then it gives the signal that, uh, guess what, uh, we won't be there to support you. Don't stay there because we won't help you. Matter of fact, we're going to totally ignore you, and that's not what we want to do. And like I said, not to be redundant, organizations are not suited and booted to deal with all those type of issues, but at least what we can do is in some measure put on our website or just some type of acknowledgement of who these individuals are and let those organizations that do deal with directly with political prisons and deal with the legal slash political actions and campaigns to get them out of prison, we can do our work and make it much easier. And, you know, because it's very demoralizing a lot of times when talking to college students or talking in a community event about political prisons in the audience, all black even, scratching their heads like wondering who you're even talking about. We are so disconnected. I'm 65. When I was in the movement at 16 years old, you know, we did not wait for somebody to explain every last detail, everything happening. What we did, believe it or not, and not sounding sarcastic or facetious, we went and read a daggone book. We found it. We weren't waiting for somebody to tell us ABC. Matter of fact, all the Panthers, everybody from Stokely Carmichael to Al Hasmalika Sabaz and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were the oldest in the group. As you just want to pinpoint people. They were each 39 when they were assassinated. So all their lives before that, the time before that, in the community, they're, they're relatively young. And all of those Panthers, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and the East Coast Panthers, and all of us, we're in our 20s. I was a teenager. It wasn't even nobody old like we are. <laughs> Like at least I am now. I mean, this is really proactive. You can go ahead and go let you go research who the political prisoners are. Don't wait for me to tell you. All you got to know, you know, we do have a history, and you find out what it is. If you so, you go find, you do the research. You find out the legacy of slavery and how it manifests itself even to today. You go find that out. You do the research, Mister and Mrs. Brother and Sister Community Activists. You go find that out. You don't wait for somebody to hand it to you on the silver platter. So. Um, once again, I salute um, everybody listening and, and definitely uh, Brother Lee Robinson for his efforts, and, and he's been in it for a very, very long time, consistently uh, tolling, you know, his, his load with, you know, bringing us together as Africans in the United States of America and making those international connections that we are one people, helping us to realize it, to realize it, to act out on it so uh, we can bring that humanity and, and, and save ourselves and save the planet. So that's pretty much all I have to say, you know, love and respect to everybody listening, you know, um, and and I'll be there to support wherever I can. Jericho will be there to support wherever you can. If you want to check out about the political prisons, one way to start, one place to start is www.thejerichomovement.com, and you'll see what we're doing nationally and and and, and even locally at different times. So thank you very much, and I'll be on the line listening. Brother Jihad, if you got a couple minutes, I would like to respond to a couple things. One, 
I know you do mm-hmm. a lot of speaking engagements on political prisoners for groups, organizations, schools that would like to maybe invite you to their community. How can they do this? Okay, so, and I appreciate that, Brother Lee. Um, uh, uh, well, the best way to make contact is, is uh, I guess, I'm, I am the chairperson of the organization. Just so happen I'm here in Richmond. But the organization, we have chapters in, in Portland, Oregon, New York, and Boston. Um, we have members in Florida. All over the United States we have people. And because of the social media, it gives, you know, that enhances uh, – our presence exponentially, but the best way to get in contact with anybody in any area, not just myself, would be to contact me at my name. So it'll be Jihad Abdulmumit. That's Jihad. Everybody knows how to spell that. Just look look at the six o'clock news, I guess. J I H A D, and then Abdul. Everybody should know how to spell Abdul. A B D U L Mumit. That's M U M I T. Jihad dot com. I mean, excuse me, at Gmail. Dot com. That's my email. My name at gmail.com is the best way to get in contact with me. My phone number, which I don't mind, it's kind of like a public number, is, is 804-304-8595, 304-8595. But the email is the best because that's my name. Or, like I said, you can go to the JerichoMovement.com, and all that contact information will be there. And, you know, we have sisters that can represent not just me. It's not a chauvinistic organization. Uh, and it's run by mostly a lot of political prisoners that have been able to get out, myself included, as a member of the Black Panther Party uh, in the past, uh, in the heyday. And I did significant time in federal prison for uh, my involvement in that organization. Um, but you can get anybody to speak, not just me. And well, we might be a conduit to get somebody else to speak if you want a sister, you know, or a younger person to speak to you, an old guy like me coming up on the set. <laughs> But there's a lot of different options, but I guess I would be the main conduit to go through to make that initial contact. If you want any one of us to speak, you know, I have contact with probably almost all of the Black Panthers that are still alive in the United States today, alive and active, that is. Um, so um, okay. our numbers are getting small. You realize that, uh, Brother Lee, with, even with yourself, I guess you probably be about the same age, the same uh, era, uh, you know, when we die, you know, that generation, we're talking about the legacy from the 60s and 70s, and we are the, the elders from that era. When we die, do you realize, listeners, that's the end of that? The rest you definitely have to get in the book. Because the, the ones that are alive, like Brother Lee, myself, and all the sisters and brothers that are listening on this phone call right now, when we die, you realize that's it. So if we haven't really passed, successfully passed the torch from the African tradition of word of mouth storytelling to tell you that this is what happened, as opposed to you reading some Western um, twisted type of narrative. But when you want to hear it from, for lack of a better word, the horse's mouth directly from the soldiers and, and the combat warriors back and freedom fighters that are still alive, here we are. Lee Robinson, myself, and many other sisters and brothers listening on this line that will probably be on the call later on. You know, when we die, that's it for that generation. And we are getting older, and we are dying. <laughs> and um, and speak- the, the 60s and the 70s was a hell of a period in this country. And then leave it up to the mainstream media and, and academics, they will have you forget it, all of it. It's like animals. They'll really have- it right off the wall. 
not only would it have you forget it, but it'll have you think that it never existed, like you like you've been saying. And speaking of that fact, I think mm-hmm. we're bringing Brother Haki right now. Brother Haki okay. was the MC at the program, and Brother Haki, I'd like to get your reflection on this program, and maybe some of the thoughts that um that came from Brother um Jihad just now about this question of transforming information from one generation to the next one, so this thing can keep going on. So give me your general reflection first, Brother Haki, on this program. What you took for, from it? What was your message to our people? And just a general response from what you heard so far. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think Brother Jihad is absolutely correct. There's a certain kind of urgency in terms of conveying a message to, to our young people. Uh, one of the things we're very, very clear on, the, the media in particular is very, very savvy in terms of his ability to sort of whitewash history. And as a consequence, when we look at these, a lot of these books and when we look at the history, it don't, it's not only, you know, um, non-factual, but in fact it's designed solely to mislead. And so, therefore, understanding that we have to have young people at this point in history who understand the necessity, who understand the history of that struggle. So brothers like uh, Juhai, you know, who paid the ultimate price in terms of going to prison for the uh, betterment of our people, we owe a certain homage, a certain amount of respect, a certain amount of love in terms of brothers and sisters, you know, who made the ultimate sacrifice in terms of doing that. So we, we can't lose fact, sight of the fact that, you know, when we talk about these struggles, that first and foremost we have to keep in mind that those brothers and sisters who paved the way in terms of making this movement possible, many of which language in jail can never be forgotten. So we have to do that. So the brothers are absolutely correct in that regard. I think in terms of the necessity in terms of this kind of program, in terms particularly in a place like Richmond, I think it sets a, not only does it set a precedent, but also it sort of calls into question in terms of why it's so important to have a broader understanding in terms of politics. One of the things, you know, it's fine to be nationalistic, and that's a very good thing. And as a prerequisite, to be a nationalist is a starting point in terms of a consciousness, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But we have to enhance that consciousness and understand that this problem that our African people are confronted with is a global problem. It's not just in America. It's not just in Richmond or, or Virginia or, you know, New York or, or Baltimore or wherever. It's, it's, it's international. And so to understand that, then we understand that the solution to our problem has to be an international one. And so, therefore, in understanding that international context in terms of the political question around which way forward, we have a better un- un- understanding in terms of what we, precisely what we have to do in terms of achieving our liberation in society. So this kind of program is very, very important in terms of bringing to, to light, you know, the, the seriousness in terms of this movement as related to human, uh, human existence you know, here on this planet. And as a brother alluded to, he talked about the fact that when we talk about the devastation to the planet, planet there's no question about that. Uh, so we got to do a responsibility. We got, on one hand, we got to fight for the evolution or the survival of humanity. And on the second, on the second, to the second uh, point, we have to fight in terms of the survival of the planet itself. So we talk about a system that's fundamentally in opposition to not only to human life but to the planet itself. And so we have an ultimate responsibility, ult- uh, a, a very deep responsibility in terms of, you know, dealing with those realities and formulating strategies in terms of which we're forward to not only save humanity, but ultimately to save the planet as well. So it's a very, very enormous struggle, but it's one nonetheless we have to undertake if, in fact, if we're going to be successful. Uh, I think that, um, you know, in the future, you know, um, we, we anticipate it's going to be much, much bigger. And what the brother alluded to when he talked about the fact that, you know, there's correlations or connections between different groups, it's a must. And that's something, personally, I'm working on myself in terms of trying to bring that into fruition, uh, you know, trying to get people together in terms of understanding as opposed to all of this this sectarian way of seeing things, the way we fight each other in terms of over ideology, that we understand that it's 
different organizations can perform different functions, but we all do it under one rubric and make it possible in terms of push this movement forward. And we do that in terms of understanding what our specialties are, how we can unite in terms of bringing about you know the desired results, and more importantly, creating the conditions to ensure that we impact to the maximum level the consciousness of our young people. So this is what we have to do, and that's something I'm undertaking. So the brother is absolutely correct, and that's one of the things I definitely you would be probably in the future be contacting him in terms of being part of a symposium to actually have these discussions because we have to have that discussion because, unfortunately, as I knew to earlier, there is a nationalist sentiment in which sometimes we fell under grass that, you know, someone else's political line, even though it may be perceived as maybe, maybe broader, but nonetheless does fit into the proper scheme of things when we talk about the liberation of African people. And so, therefore, we shouldn't necessarily see political line as a threat, but see there's an opportunity in terms of engagement and ultimately, you know, to make it possible to work together in terms of creating the kind of conditions that we need in terms of bringing the best out of our people and at the same time, you know, organizing our young people for the future. You know, I also like to bring in another participant on the program, Brother Anthony Williams. He came down and he also was a participant. Brother Anthony, give us your reflection of the program and maybe some of your thoughts on some of the things you think our listening audience need to know and what you have heard so far from this program today. Certainly. Um, I concur with uh, the points made by Brother Jihad and Brother Haki. Uh, to this point, I would add that I think it's significant that in spite of all the economic and political obstacles the African Awareness Association went through to pull this program off, it did come off and it was successful. And uh, people should not, uh, uh, you know, be uh, be misled by by you know, the small audience is the quality of the audience that's most important. And uh, among the uh, the people that did attend were people that have a lot of influence in their respective communities and organizations. So I think it was a very important event in that regard. And in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of African youth not knowing about the uh, you know political prisoners and I missed. I attribute that to uh, the drive to desegregation, which uh, put the education of a lot of our people, a lot of our youth, in the hands of other people who don't understand our history, culture, and could care less about us. And uh, as a result, that is why there's that disconnect between. Uh, the generation uh, that helped build the Black Panther Party and, and numerous other political organizations and our youth presently because a lot of people in that generation did a very bad job of passing on the lessons of our struggles to our youth. And, uh, and uh, you know, that's something we have to credit, and I think an event like this helps do do that but we but we have to uh get organized and take control of the education of our youth we cannot leave that up to other people and i think that's something we've learned over the last um 40 years or so that when you uh when you leave the education of the youth up to other people then you get people that work against your interests 
And you know, um, so that's what I took away from that, yeah. Okay, but go ahead, if you had a minute, cut across you. Finish your points. No, I said uh, that was the key thing I took away from that, that, um, you know, that you, the, the festival was successful and that um, that it generated a lot of interest, and I think it's something to be to build on in the future. You know, for those who didn't come and were trying to figure out the purpose of the program, one of the things the African Awareness Association set out to do was to highlight a day for Africa. When we look at the present um, realities of Africa and how it has been presented to the world, it had not been presented in a good light. And one of the things they wanted to do was, you know, remind our people and speak to this historical legacy of our people in terms of the concept that there is a pan-African connection among our struggles, and we are still struggling for freedom. We are not free. We call for freedom now. We also talk about this whole concept where we are one people, one struggle, and one destiny. Africa must free. We say that 400 years later, in 1619, we are still Africa. We are still Africans, and we love our motherland, Africa. Now, in terms of this, this narrative of 1619, there seemed to be uh, a celebration all the year around 1619 on the arrival of the first enslaved Africans. I was just wondering in terms of just from the psychological, political perspective of that particular narrative, how do y'all view the impact of that particular narrative in terms of starting that history off as being enslaved upon their arrival? Brother Jihad, I'll let you start first. So just reframe that one more time, Brother Lee. How do you how do view, view this? How do you view this narrative from a psychological, political perspective? Of the people are celebrating the first enslavement of African people in this country in 1619. Just the nature of they start us all as being enslaved. And one of the things in terms of when we talk about cultural resistance is to show how we have always fought against it. And that's was another reason why we wanted to have this this type of festival in opposition to these type of narratives or putting that people oh, in the nation light. So, nice. so in terms of how they have presented the 1619 and got a lot of our people brought into it, how do you see the impact of it <laughs> psychologically in terms of how this whole narrative has been presented? What is your take on this whole 1619 right. and the first slave African people in this country? Yeah, I think it's... Um, yeah, yeah, I think that... Um, uh, I think that the powers that be have co-opted our experience, and it's, it's a misleading type of thing to have us celebrating as if we have successfully assimilated into this society and that everything is okay and this is all part of our, ha- our experience, almost to put a happy face on it, and uh, with a gala affairs and things of this nature to give the illusion that we are a part and getting our fair share of the pie, for lack of a better way of putting it, and you're celebrating it, so when um, so it's not it's not directed towards uh, our true liberation moving forward at all. And uh, like I said, putting a, a false smiley face on it and and intellectualizing our whole the whole brutality of it all. You can intellectualize it has little programs about it and. And, and, and that celebratory type of thing, but really we should be sharpening our knives, so to speak. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, scratch, scratch that. But uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? I think that um, it's very misleading. So it's a thing like this. So 
uh, if we don't control uh, our own narrative, meaning truly the in, in the hands of, of African peoples, and we let those and we let allow those, like you said, have been co-opted. And the last brother that spoke, you know, aptly put it, then we, we leave our education and our direction, our celebrations, and everything else in the hands of, of, of the oppressor itself, or in the hands of those that are in the bed with the oppressor to make it look like it is us. Because of black people leading a lot of these celebrations, you know, and 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 this is for those who's listening that's involved in those type of things. This I want to say it respectfully, but we need to reanalyze uh, the direction of all of these celebrations. If the celebration is directed to establish what had happened and lead us to our true liberation, power, independence, and and and, and if it's going in that direction, right on. If it's just to say that, hey, this is where we are in America, can't we just live together? And while we suffer, more things change and more they remain the same. We're still marginalized, we're still oppressed, we're still profiled and brutalized by the police, we're still mass incarcerated and, and, you know, racist attacks. Hey, if that's what's still going on and you celebrate, there's no celebration. We should, this should be uh, 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 funerals we should be having, mock funerals or something. But, um, because if you can't, we're not making the success that, we, that people think that we're making. It's very misleading. And like the brother said, we we in a lot of respects, be careful what you ask for because you might get it. So all the struggles and so many of our dear sisters and brothers, this is not a slight to anybody that put themselves on the line and water holes, collective pride in the streets and, and killed and hung bottom of the lake, hung from trees just to get respect in the society, to integrate and become a part of this society. I understand that struggle, but look, it had, a, it had an ending that, was un, that was, wasn't too well thought out. And you may not have been able to see that, and this is not a criticism to those sisters and brothers who put their life down the line to have done that. But now that we are at this point, and we see what integrating ourselves into the uh, the oppressor's uh, womb. We're getting slighted on our education, and we're in, we're in a worse place because we've we've uh, given up our, our our power base, our strength. We've given up the, the, our, our our spirit, and put it in the hands of somebody else, and being totally misdirected. I hope I'm not just talking too much around the circles, but maybe somebody else can pick it up from there. But it's misleading. You know that we that we're okay, and we've come this far, and to intellectualize the rape of our women, and the castration of our men, and the hangings, and the and and and, and the drownings, and, and the assassinations of our leaders. You know, and, and this is this is not the history that to be intellectualized. And let's just talk about it and celebrate, have some dance, and this and that. And are we okay? No, we're not okay. We're not okay. okay. We're not okay. You know, and Let Donald Trump is right. making it very clear that we're not. Okay. That's my yeah, Let me stop you right there and bring in this other speaker. We have Sister Namia, who will also be participant at the Pan-African National Festival of Culture Unity. Sister Namia, can you hear us? Yes, I can, Brother um, Lee. Yes, I can. Yeah, well, we would like uh, to hear yeah. just What we're doing right now, we're just doing a... A reflection of the event and some of the things that we'll share and some of the things that you observe and some of the messages you'd like to share with our listening audience. So just give us a, a reflection based upon your participation in the event and some of the things you'd like to share with our listening listen audience from your perspective. The mic is yours. Okay. Well, I had a beautiful time at the event. We were blessed to have one of the last poets to come and 
as a teenager, I mean, that was my inspiration, The Last Poets, because that was in the 60s. And that that voice just, it spurned so much uh, discussion about our struggle during that time, and it really motivated us that wanted to, you know, make a difference in our people's life to march on and, and you know, try to make things better, you know. But like his brother said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. But it was just a beautiful event because people, conscious people that had been in the struggle for a long time came from D.C. and North Carolina, Atlanta, different places, and it was just it was just an inspiration to know that despite everything that's going on, people are willing to still come together and reason and talk about, you know, the need for things, you know, the need for us to continue to struggle because, you know, whether Trump or Obama, whoever's in the office, it's always the same story. You know, it's always about us, you know, having to, to deal with, with, you know, poverty and, and police brutality and, and negativity and the breakup of the black family. And nowadays it just seems like, you know, the women don't want the men and men don't want the women. It's just so much of that going on, you know, and so many perverse things that are going on that, you know, we just have to continue to be hopeful and continue to struggle and try to make things better. If not for our sakes, you know, for our children and our grandchildren's sake, but the, the talent that was there, you know, the sister, um, I think she was playing the guitar, you know, and she's been all over the world and the young man that did the rapping and it was just fantastic. And I'm looking forward to next year to even being bigger. And I would encourage everybody to try to come out next year and, you know, support Brother Lee and his organization because, you know, without no struggle, there's no progress and we have to, you know, continually support each other that's trying to make a difference and make things better. That I guess that's basically all I had to say. It was just a wonderful, wonderful event. You know, Sudanamia, we were just talking before you probably came on. Also to our listening audience, we'd like to share with you that we have invited various participants who participated mm-hmm. at this event to call in and um, receive the information that people are having difficulties calling into this program. So, um, like always, when you're trying to do things to move people forward, you don't control the technology. You can, you can right. expect different type of resistance. So we're going to do the best we can. So um, we just want to inform you about that. But anyway, Sister Namia, what is your response to the narrative of how they've been displaying this 400 years of 1619, the arrival of the first enslaved Africans to Virginia? Why is people falling for that, that particular narrative? What's so good about celebrating uh, one's enslavement as a people. What's your take on there's that? No way, there's, there's no way that you can celebrate that because it, it's still going on. I mean, it, it's not like that's ancient history. This is still going on as far as us not having our rights and us being brutalized by the police and us being, um, you know, not receiving everything that we need to function as human beings in this society. I mean, it's just a joke. Really, it's just a way for the establishment to continue to make money off of us. So a lot of people are so excited about Harriet. I mean, whenever we do libations or whenever we honor the ancestors, I always call out Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth, but there's nothing real positive about that. It's just keep on reminding us that we're slaves, as far as I'm concerned. There's just nothing to celebrate. You know, we're in the same boat that we've always been in in this country. 
And it's ludicrous to think that, you know, all of a sudden everything is so great because we survived 400 years. We survived 400 years of hell. That's what we've survived. And just like the brother said, we were here thousands of years even before the Native Americans. We're really the original people on this. When, when the world was all just one landmass, we just walked and we walked over here and we traveled over here. And if I'm not foot, definitely by boat. So this is our land and, and we were here before anybody else. And, and we're not going to celebrate the fact that, you know, we've been in this captivity for 400 years. And I'm a Hebrew, so I definitely am not thrilled about our captivity in America for 400 years. I would love to leave here and never come back if I had the financial uh, wherewithal to do that. But I, but I, I just think it's a, a dupe for people to think that, you know, all of a sudden things are so great and we're celebrating something like we're post-slavery. We're not. We're still in the same boat where we were always in ever since they dragged us over here allegedly in 1500 and something. That's what I think. Okay. Right now we're going to bring in one of our panelists for the day, Brother Moses. You've been listening to this conversation. Are there anything you'd like to add or share with our listening audience from what you have heard so far, Brother Moses? Okay, we're going to come back with Brother Moses. Let's go with Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, you've been listening to the discussion. Anything you'd like to share in terms of some of the things that you just heard as relates to this recent celebration we had dealing with the Richmond First Pan-African International Festival of Culture and Unity? Brother Jabari, your thoughts on some of the things that may have just been stated just now? Given that we're in the misinformation age, which pretty much we've been living in since America's inception, it's important that these issues that you all are raising are continue to be raised in order to change the paradigm because far too often people are bombarded with negative propaganda that has their mind into endorsing that which is antithetical to their existence. Okay. Now, I believe we have... We invited Sister Celine for Cameroon. I believe we have Sister Celine on, and one of the things we're talking about is the Pan-African connection is we must connect back home with our motherland. And Sister Celine, we did invite her and her organization, and what we would like to do is to bring Sister Celine. I believe, Sister Celine, can you hear me now? 2145, that's all numbers, 2145. Is this Sister Celine? Or call identify yourself, your last four numbers, 2145. If you don't, if they're hello. not, Sister Yes, hello. Who is 2145? Introduce yourself, please. Your question or comments. Hello. Yes, Carla. Carla, Good evening. question or comments? Hello. Good evening. Good evening, Sister How are you doing? Good, 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 good. Hello. Yeah, we're glad to have you on the program. We was unfortunate not to get you um, uh, on the 27, but we did include your country and your movement, your organization, because this is a Pan-African struggle. We want you to give our listening audience, to those who may have not heard you before, an introduction briefly of your organization and what's going on in Cameroon and why we should connect as why we see ourselves as one people. We are one people with one struggle and one destiny. So can you speak to that thing, Sister Celine, for our listening audience? 
Hello, I'm happy to be with, with all of us uh, this evening. It's really wonderful for us to be together. Oh, my name is Naya Lepunzestalin. I'm the president of uh, Mubwet, Mundani Believing Women Cooperative. Oh, we are together, and that makes me always so happy when I hear people like you speaking about unity in Africa, speaking of how Africa can be united back again, because it's my cry for Africa, for Mother Africa and the people in Africa, or this time in Cameroon. At least the crisis are seizing a bit. It's not like last time that they were just killing people anyhow. It's seizing a bit, but the problem is that oh, people have lost their houses, they have lost many things, children cannot go to school, and so on and so forth. We are inside struggling struggling to make peace, struggling to make ends meet. That's not easy with us. At times I want to call, there's no network. At times I want to call, I don't have any time to even call. So we just thank God and we believe that God will help us in this struggle and one day we'll be united. One day Africa will be one. One day Africa will be united and we will celebrate Africa. I believe that our dreams shall come true one day so that we will be able to meet together and celebrate like Africans. We are Africans everywhere we are. We are identical people. We love ourselves. That's what I knew about Africans, that we love ourselves, and we are united. We take care of one another. We feel for one another, and we believe in one another. And that's a very big tool of development. What can make people develop, what can make people united is love. There's nothing that can unite people more than love. If people love themselves, then they want to do anything. They can do it. They'll be able to do it. So my prayer is that God should help us to love one another with a sincere heart so that in everything that we want to do, we'll be able to do it. Any activity that we want to carry, we'll be able to carry it. In fact, it really pains me when I miss the program of last time last month but I thank God that it went well and I pray that God should unite us and give us that spirit of uniting together and carrying out our activities together so that we will succeed for now that's what I can say is going on in Cameroon we are struggling 
now to keep peace. So I believe that God will help us and see us through so that this crisis will stop, so that it will stop bloodshed. In fact, bloodshed in Africa is something I don't know how we can stop Africans from fighting. I don't know. When you have a problem with your brother or your sister, you shouldn't fight. You can say, tell your brother, I have a problem with you, and you certainly not for people to not be fighting and destroying one another. We have already lost so many youth in our country, lost so many houses, lost so many things. But I believe that we realize what we have done and then we will change for the better. You know, um, yes, go ahead, Celine, finish your points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, go ahead, The real problem that is disturbing now is the problem of how of uh, a settlement, how people can be resettled back to their houses, to their places to build back people's houses. The problem of children going to school is the most difficult problem that we are going through now. Okay. Well, listen to what you should listen to your sister Celine for Cameroon. One of the things she's raised, and I'd like for all of those who's on this line today to respond to it, is this question of uh, Africans being in, Africans being in conditions of turmoil. We still are fighting some of the Africans around the world. And a lot of this fighting is created by external pressures as well as internal contradictions. Now, one of the things, Brother Haki and Brother Anthony, I'd like for y'all to take a lead on this, around the issue of the importance of Pan-Africanism. We have problems with African people all over the world. How do we come up with some kind of process, some kind of mechanism where we can begin to analyze that problem, prioritize it, and fit it in a way that we can address the concerns of African people all over. I think this issue in Cameroon is one of many issues that are facing African people and Africans throughout the world. How do we deal with that? How do we start out and say, look, how do we put this in perspective where we all can work together to solve all the various problems that African people face? Brother Haki first, then Brother Anthony Sucker. Give me your thoughts on that. Because I think this is one of the most important aspects that we need to learn and look at around this concept of Pan-Africanism. And I'm saying that because we are interested in putting this festival together. You know, many of our people had a negative thought, had a negative vibe on Pan-Africanism. They viewed it as something harmful, something they don't want to be associated with. It. So will y'all speak to speak to this whole question of we have so many problems, how do we begin to... Um, begin to create a process to, to, to mainstream them and begin to target them so we can help our people no matter where they are. Brother Haki? <clears throat> well, you know, you know um, Brother Africa, um, the question that you propose is a very intricate question. Uh, you know, there are so many obstacles that sort of negate any meaningful uh, movement toward the liberation of Africa. You know, we have the question of class, which which exists, you know, uh, of course, we understand throughout human society. But then superimposed upon is a question in terms of 
uh, tribalism, and that too is a problem, specifically when we talk about the continent of Africa. So you're talking about some type, essentially what you're talking about is some kind of realignment in terms of a fundamental understanding of, of history, which suggests that uh, if you don't work together, then you can't conceivably survive. So we have to get this message out to, to, to African leadership that one of the things that, you know, one of the things that colonial powers did was they divided Africa. So we talk about the Berlin Conference and we talk about the dividing of, of Africa. Clearly, those artificial boundaries that were created has, a, has peculiar implications. And so for their African leaders who head those states up, uh, the position as far as they're concerned is that, they, you know, they, their jurisdiction uh, lies uh, around those, those boundaries. In that context, if you aren't concerned about your own superficial boundaries, then you're not predisposed to be concerned about those boundaries outside of, quote-unquote, your state. And so that is a fundamental uh, problem in terms, of, in terms of geopolitics. So what we have to begin to understand, and get African leaders in particular to understand, is that when we talk about the context of geopolitics, we have to understand that the Western world had the vested interest in this, the, 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 um, the marginalization, the uh, oppression, uh, the um, uh, repression of Africa simply because what is more important to the Western powers is the question of resources and not in terms of the question in terms of, of, of democracy or humanity. Those things as far as the Western world is concerned are not things that are germane to, to African aspirations. And so African leaders have, in particular have to begin to understand that given this backdrop, given this reality in terms of this antagonism toward Africa you know, uh, as, a, as a continent, then the response has to be a collective one. So we've got to understand that those artificial barriers that were created, we have to start looking beyond those barriers and begin to understand that we have to function as one organism. Because if we don't, then the Western world is simply going to pick off Africa one state at a time, and that's precisely what they're doing. So, so the question, I think, uh, to answer your question, Brother Africa, I think we have to get African leaders to understand that, first and foremost, that we're in this fight together. And this notion in terms of, you know, that my group, uh, concerns supersedes the concerns of someone in another in, in another state. We have that kind of thinking has to be overcome because no individual state, and I think Kwame Nkrumah was very clear on that point. No individual African state can stand alone. If Africa does not unite, then there's no conceivable way, conceivable way possible for Africa to be liberated. So African states have to work together. But in order for them to work together, they have to begin to understand, you know, that this whole notion in terms of these boundary states that are created by the West. Uh, should and by no stretch of the imagination be a, 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 a barrier in terms of reaching out to other African leadership in terms of moving forward with policy and strategies uh, that's going to take Africa forward. I think, having said that, Brother Africa, I think it's important that we also understand that, you know, that when we talk about being truly liberated, then we have to have two things have to happen. Africa must have its own bank. It must have its own bank uh, in terms of currency. It must control its own currency. Um, Secondly, I think Africa has to be in a situation where, um, uh, well, not only the currency, but it has to be a situation where Africa has to, um, it, it has to, it, 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 it has to, I, I'm trying to put this delicately, but it has to be, it has to be of the assumption, you know, that, uh, you know, that, you know, the history of Africa is the history of, the history of the world. And then understanding that Africa as a history of the world and understand that the possibilities, the things which Africa have historically achieved can be achievable once again. So that means that African leaders have to understand the, the history. And the, one of the things that when we talk about understanding history and we talk about you know, the Western uh, 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 plan uh, to actually deconstruct African history to the point 
where you African, a lot of African leaders today are very knowledgeable when it comes to Western history, but nothing about Africa. And so when we talk about the origin of human beings, and we talk about first civilization of the world, then clearly we're talking about Africa. But yet, so many African leaders have no intimate knowledge in terms of the, the African civilization to the world. In fact, they think that civilization started with the West. And so therefore, there has to be a fundamental change in terms of how the history is viewed if Africa is to be truly liberated. So those things have to happen in order for Africa to move forward. And, of course, how that gets done is, is, is very, 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 very complex uh, problem. But anyway, I'm not going to I'm not going to go into that. That would take too long. But I think that once we address those things, we're on our way in terms of, you know, moving forward in Africa. I think that one of the things that Dr. Uh, Professor Lumumba out of Kenya has been doing, he's been going around the continent for the last three months talking about the necessity in terms of, you know, erecting. A, 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 a political, political economic system which is in keeping with African history. Now, Africa has a history in terms of doing that, but when he, but when he presents his ideas, they're, they're, they're perceived by the masses of African leadership as somehow uh, aberrant or somehow strange or, some, or somehow um, not appropriate. So that kind of thinking has to, has to fundamentally had to be overcome. And so I think to, to the extent that the diaspora can play a part in terms of changing that mindset, I think the Aspera has also played a big part in terms of making sure that the message is very, very clear that no longer can we, can we continue to uh, uh, justify you know, the oppression of African people based upon some erroneous belief that African people somehow not fit. So I think those things have to happen in terms of moving Africa forward. Brother Anthony, your response to this whole question of um, giving the many problems that African people face around the world in Africa and outside of Africa, how do we come up with some kind of process and scheme that can dissect the issues and prioritize the issues where we can work as one functioning group to solve the problems of African people globally? And I'm speaking the concept of um, the need to really understand Pan-Africanism more properly. Can you just talk a little bit about it from your perspective? Certainly. I think, um, well, as I was listening to Sister Celine talk about uh, the situation in Cameroon, it reminded me of some of the problems that uh, that Africans face in uh, in other in various parts of the diaspora, not just at home, uh, such as uh, Haiti, uh, the U.S., uh, Venezuela, etc., and Colombia. And I think uh, what I think what we have to do is we have to uh, one we have to belong to an organization or organizations, and uh, Africans cannot afford any longer to be outside of any sort of organization. If you don't like the organizations that exist out here, create your own. But Africans have to be organized. That is very critical. And along with that, we need uh, to have uh, a political education program because even though our problems are complex and uh, very intricate, there are certain commonalities. All Africans, no matter where in the world they live, are affected by all manifestations of capitalism, including racism, imperialism, Zionism, neocolonialism, settler colonialism, etc. And they have similar impacts on African people. 
in terms of being able to educate our youth, to be able to, uh, you, you know, to to ensure uh, the safety and security uh, 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 and end the oppression of women and uh, health care, employment, and uh, the pursuit of happiness generally. And uh, and 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 the solution lies in Pan-Africanism, which is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And the reason why this is important is because that is the only solution that can solve all the problems facing Africans at home and in the diaspora. And it would be achieved by. Uh, uni- by unifying Africans under a common re- revolutionary ideology. And uh, we in the All African People's Revolutionary Party, JC, believe that ideology is in Kumism, Tereism. And, uh, but we ha- uh, uh, and uh, that will, uh, you know, be, be a step toward solving most of the, 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 the common problems that Africans face worldwide, and uh, we and uh, and uh, this has to be done. But in order for we're 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 over a build, over a two, nearly two billion people scattered worldwide, so we have to come together in a unified voice. Because uh, even though our problems are very diverse, there there are certain commonalities. We have a common enemy, and uh, we have a common destiny, and there's a common solution to our problem. And I think that was that was one of the most important lessons to be drawn from this uh, Pan African and International Festival. That, in spite of all of our differences, the things that we have in common are greater than the things that divide us. Okay, what we're going to do right now, we're going to let Brother Moses bring him back, let him make some comments or raise some questions. Then we're going on a station break, and when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. So right now, Brother Moses, welcome back. Uh, any questions, comments, or thoughts so far, based on what I heard, Brother Moses? The mic is yours. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Greetings. Uh, I um, wasn't able to get online during the 27th uh uh, I was trying to listen in to the proceedings, but somehow the phones weren't working, and uh, but so I missed a very important uh, meeting. Okay, but anyway, Brother Moses, I think the whole point of this festival was the one we wanted to introduce various movements to this particular community and to our people. That's very important because, you know, our people, we are so disorganized, but yet we have more organizations than any other organization in the world. One of the contradictions we recognize at the African Women Association is that we need to have more people inside these organizations. So, you know, sometimes as press people, we like to uh, give excuses for the things we are not doing. So one of the things we want to do and institutionalize is that these important organizations that, that do exist in our community, that our people know about them. So there'll be no excuse to what they can't say. They don't know about the organization. 
And once they come to these organizations, there's no excuse why they can't find one or more organizations to join to work to work towards helping advance our people. That's one of the objectives of this particular um, uh, uh, festival. Another objective of this festival is to introduce the very organizations to start getting them to work more closely together with one another. You know, there are many times when we have these, these programs, even the participants get a, get a, don't have much time to even discuss among themselves the nature of the work they're doing and how they relate to each other. So we also wanted to create an atmosphere of more closeness between the various organizations and the people who are doing the work. And number three, but more important, is that we must begin to define our own narratives and introduce our history and our understanding of the world from our perspectives. And this is why we decided to invite some of the most conscious, brightest, revolutionary, progressive Africans and African people around in the world to come to Richmond. This was very, very historic. And we are taking that first step, and we'll continue to take more. So at this particular time, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for this cause. When we come back, we will continue this discussion as it relates to Richmond's first Pan-African International Festival of Culture and Unity. Uh, on October 27th in Richmond, the theme was the Pan-African Connection and our struggles, freedom now. We are one people, one struggle, and one destiny. Africa must be free. we got to stop pretending that we are free, because if you're free, you'll act like you're free. You don't have to pretend. Let's get away from this illusion and inclusion of saying we are free. We are not free, and we'll never be free until Africa is free. So we can pause for this cause, and we'll be right back. You are listening to Africa on the Move. And he was taken from 
and the same destiny. It doesn't matter whether you live in Jamaica, you're Haiti, or Colombia, or whether in America, or in the continent, we are the one and we have the same struggle. And we must address our issues and unify voice, like what you did in this event that we had in Richmond. And we are looking forward to have great participants in the and also across uh, the world to attend the next one. Uh, I think it was a good thing, and I hope that it could be done every year. That is my opinion, and I hope should, we have resources can put it together again uh, for years to come. And also we pray that uh, Brother Lee, your health, and also your brother Aki, and, and those who are participating with us, uh, the D.C. and the African, they move. I hope that you guys will be also in the healthy uh, way forward in African struggle to move the struggle forward so we can liberate our continent, our people in diaspora, as well to rule or to move forward so our issues could be addressed, not also to be a victim all the time, but we could be also the dreamers that we can also make a world a better place and the African we must lead the world at this time around. And we are looking for African world. We have to address the African world. We have to see, because we're African people. Globally, we are majority. And we should not think minority, as John N. L. Clark used to say. That we, we have been taught to think minority where we are the majority. So let's think as majority people. Let's rule the world. Let's move forward with our agenda so the world also can listen to us. You already see the African woman was removed in the African Union that we Africans don't own African Union. So the question we ask ourselves, who own African Union? Why are our people that be removed in African Union? That is the question we should ask ourselves. And we need to know who owns that organization. So in the Fun African Organization, I believe we are going to answer this question in the long run. And thank you so much for having me tonight. Hey, Brother, Brother Bo, can you just talk just briefly a little bit about why it's important for us to know what's going on in Sudan, North and South Sudan. Why is that important to African people in other parts of the world? Because many people talk to us and say, you know, why are we worried about what's going on in Sudan? Can you give us some kind of relationship or the importance of Sudan to all the problems of African people in general from your perspective? Thank you, Brother Lee. I want African people to know, not only in the Asfara, even in the continent, they need to know that Sudan is the big elephant of Africa. Sudan is the heart of Africa. If you take Sudan away from Africa, the Africa cannot survive. Go and look on the map. Sudan is the heart of Africa. And Sudan is actually the mother of the Africa. Sudan have historical that African one time it was the actually the mankind, the civilization began in Sudan, began in Kush. And the Kush is the Sudan today. And we should go back to claim the Kush that have been taken over by the invaders. And that's why Sudan is a big elephant. If we cannot rescue Sudan, we are not able to rescue Africa. So the Sudan struggle is a key for the African people to be able to unite Africa again because actually the unification of the Sudan, it means the United States of Africa will come 
to life. If Sudan is still in a struggle, Sudan is the biggest country in Africa. Before it divided with South Sudan, it was the biggest country in Africa. And Sudan is the one that owns the Nile Valley. And Sudan has the resources. The word meaning Sudan is not the real original name of African people. That's why we need to take Sudan back to the Kush. And the Kush kingdom was the Sudan today. So our struggle to make sure that we need to reclaim back our history and have to start in Sudan. And what makes Africa, not to achieve the United States of Africa, since Kwame Kuma spoke in 1950, is because Sudan was not in our hand as African people. Sudan was actually in the hand of the invaders. And now we're still struggling to gain momentum in Sudan in order for us to gain Africa to help the United States of Africa again. So Sudan is a key for African people in diaspora as well in the continent. Historically, Sudan is a key. Politically, Sudan is a key. Economically, Sudan is the key. Sudan has the largest oil. Even compared to Saudi Arabia, Sudan has more oil than Saudi Arabia. Sudan is the basket of Africa. Sudan has resources. Uh, mineral, oil, gold, everything that you need is in Sudan. And that's why Sudan is a key for Africa to stand up and claim that country. Sudan, with the Kemet, which is the Egypt today, they are the, actually Sudan and the Kemet are the, actually the civilization of African people. And we need to claim Sudan and instead to claim the Kemet as well, which is the Egypt today. So I will hand it over to you to know that Sudan is a key and we need our brothers and sisters to support our campaign in Sudan, to support our struggle in Sudan, and that why being the candidate of the country of the South Sudan, it means to unify the indigenous people of Sudan back again so we can claim the Kush, so we can have a United States of Kush and instead to, uh, to, to emerge to the United States of Africa. Because there's no way we can achieve the United States of Africa, we cannot achieve the United States of Kush which is the Sudan today. So I will stop here. Okay, Brother Bo, we're going to stop you right there, and we're going to bring in another participant who participated in the Pan-African Conference, um, Pan-African Festival, uh, International Festival. I believe we have Brother John Standback. Brother John Standback, we welcome you to Africa on the Move, and can you talk to our listening audience in terms of your reflections on this recent event? So, good evening. Uh, this is Brother Lee. Yes, he is. Okay. So, uh, I, first of all, I want to thank uh, you and our sisters and brothers for organizing the first annual Pan-Africanist Festival. Uh, and I hope and expect that there will be uh, many, many more. Uh, we've been waiting you know, over 20 years for this. Uh, uh, my reflection, initial reflection is that uh, this was a historical gathering, not only because it was the first Pan-African festival, but the quality of the speakers uh, was really extraordinary. We had, uh, we had academics uh, who educated us, and we had uh, uh, poets and spoken word artists, uh, 
reminding us of the importance and central importance of culture. And we had political activists such as myself, uh, such as you, uh, Brother Robinson. And um, so it all came together. Uh, I think that we should be heartened by the participation uh, of, uh, I estimated, probably about 150 people showed up. I think that's good for the first year. We need to greatly expand that. So uh, since the festival, I have been uh, talking about it and the experience. Uh, I was at Petersburg Prison uh, Friday night, and uh, I was in the sweat lodge with the Native American brothers there at uh, Petersburg Prison, and I talked with them about the Pan-Africanist Festival. And I talked with them about the history of the solidarity between uh, the Native American movement, liberation movement, and the African liberation movement. And I talked about, and and I know that you will remember this, Lee, that uh, several times the American Indian movement and the All-African People's Revolutionary Party and uh, AFPRP-GC organized delegations to the Middle East, to to, to Iraq and also to Libya, uh, and uh, so they were organized together. It was uh, the American Indian Movement and the uh, African People's Liberation Movement organizing together. Uh, And so it was uh, yourself, uh, uh, Brother Bob Brown, Brother Kwame Toure, who talked about the importance of solidarity and the importance of working with allies. So it was people like Bob Brown, people like Chili, uh, like Billy Red Wing Tyak, Chief Tyak, who I saw today. It was, today was the uh, Piscataway Indian Nation Feast of the Dead. And I spoke briefly and I talked about the Pan-Africanist Festival and the importance of solidarity. So it was both Chief Tyak and also Bob Brown who educated me about solidarity, the centrality of solidarity, and also the concept of going beyond solidarity to understanding that we are allies in struggle. And, And I think maybe if there's one thing I would reflect on would be that every single speaker talked about the importance of struggle. So I guess my contribution would be that when we struggle, we need to remember our allies, and we need to remember that when we struggle together, we, we achieve more. And when, when the oppressed work together and stand together, we can accomplish things we cannot accomplish separately. So in today's political environment, uh, I would say let's look back at what Dr. King was doing back in the 60s when he was assassinated. So where was he? He was in Memphis organizing the garbage workers, predominantly African American. He was in uh, he was in the in the inner city in New York and Chicago and Detroit 
organizing, but he was also organizing in California in the farm fields and the farm workers. And he was organizing in Appalachia with the coal miners and the white working class. And the message was, you know, we are all oppressed. We need to unite and we need to fight against the oppressor. And when we do that, we win. And, of course, that message was a very dangerous message. King was assassinated. So I think that is the most important aspect of King's message that he left us, that message he left us, you know, when he was killed. And, and, and not only Dr. King, but our brother Malcolm X as well and others have given us that same message of working together in solidarity and struggling together against our mutual oppressors. So congratulations. I, I really appreciate everything that you did yourself, Brother Lee. And I, I don't know if you have further questions of me, but thank you so much for, for all of your efforts and all the organizers. Yeah, John, I'd like for you to talk just a little bit about the nature of the work that you are doing with with your organization up in Northern Virginia and how does that play into the schemes of things of the oppressed and working class people? So, so our group primarily works directly with uh, day laborers. Most of them are immigrant day laborers. And overwhelmingly, especially our work in Woodbridge along the Route 1 corridor, involves day laborers who are indigenous. Uh, many of them, uh, at, at one point, uh, over 500 individuals from Central Puebla in the central part of Mexico in the high elevations were members of one community called the Totanaco uh, Indian Nation. So, but we also work with Mixteco and Zapotec and other Native American groups. So, uh, and these individuals uh, are also, they're traditional Indian people who recognize their traditions and their ceremonies. Uh, some of them, by the way, especially from those from Chiapas uh, are also uh, uh, African in addition to indigenous because I think it's not well known or, or well understood, but probably more enslaved uh, Americans uh, escaped to Mexico, which had abolished slavery, than escaped to Canada. And so, and, and of course they stayed there. So it, when I, when I was uh, visiting uh, the Zapatista villages about about 15 years ago, uh, it was quite amazing to see so many African Mexicans. So the point is that the Native peoples here welcome the Native peoples from Central America and South America and say, we are one blood. And so Chief Tayak, who is the chief of the Piscataway Indian Nation, who are the traditional peoples of the Washington, D.C. area, was in the forefront of all of the American Indian movement leadership. He was in the forefront of recognizing the centrality of solidarity. So when the delegations, uh, the AAPRP and the AIM delegations would gather for a rally at the White House before they would go to Libya and to Iraq, uh, to the 
to the old Soviet Union, it would be Billy that would be encouraging this and standing there. So, so I would say that our work, even though it's primarily with the indigenous community, involves you know, the, the broader Native American struggle and also the broader struggle of, of oppressed people around the world and certainly the, the, the Pan-African movement. So, uh, and I, I personally, and you know this, that I personally, you know, have been involved in the struggle since the late 1960s, since my, my involvement in the, the black action movement strike. And, and let me just say, final word on this would be that you know that I, I am a settler. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a colonist. Uh, and we need to reach out, but we also have to be very careful about you know, liberal sentiments and uh, white guilt and, and this kind of stuff because that's not real. Uh, you know, what's real is understanding that we are in this together, that we are fighting uh, a monstrous system that will not hesitate to and has not hesitated to kill and butcher millions and millions of millions of people, mostly third world people, but they will not hesitate to butcher many millions more and even destroy the planet in order to continue their their pillage of the world and particularly and especially the pillage and the rape of mother africa so you know we we just need to keep this in mind and remember that this is the situation and that we have to work together shoulder to shoulder in solidarity and and for my European sisters and brothers that are out there and then and are fighting the oppressor, you know, we need to also understand that it is from a position of privilege, you know, we should not be speaking for the oppressed people. Oppressed people can stand for themselves. It's our job to fight shoulder to shoulder and to fight and to understand that the struggle goes on every day with every breath that we take. And, and that it's that kind of an attitude uh, that will result in our victory. Okay, John, I want you to stay on for a few more minutes. And as the panelists stay on, what we're going to do, we're going to take a station break. But before we take a station break, we do have a message from the African Awareness Association from Brother Haki. We want you to. Sh- I want him to share this with our listening audience, and invite the whole world to come down to Richmond, Virginia, on November fifteenth, which is this upcoming Friday, which is a very important event, particularly as we talk about this whole question of unity, question of Africa, and question of fighting oppression. Brother Haki, will you share with the listening audience um, the event that's taking place by the African? I mean, not by the African Women's Association, but by the All African People's Revolutionary Party (GC) of Virginia on November the 15th. Yes, sir. A tribute and celebration to Brother Kwame Toure, a.k.a. Stokely Carmichael, will be offered by the All African People Revolutionary Party, GC of Virginia. This event takes place Friday, November 15th, between 6.30 to 9 o'clock. The event will be held at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. The doors open at 
6 p.m. The program will be between 6.30 to 9. For more information, please contact us at area code 202-246-4896 or area code 804-644-5830 or email us at info at a-aprp-gc.org. So we look forward to seeing all people uh, out of this event uh, to honor one of the uh, most uh, heroic individuals uh, to uh, ever um, grace us in terms of his presence when it comes to Pan-Africanism. And Brother Anthony, as a uh, inheritor of the work and legacy of Brother Ture, just a few minutes before we go on this break, what would you like to say to our people or the points of remembering Brother Ture's work and um, why they should come out to this event? Uh, they should come out to support this event and participate because the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, is continuing the work uh, that Kwame Ture in, in, inherited from his members of uh, Kwame Nkrumah and Ahmed Sekretary uh, to build uh, a United States of Africa by organizing to achieve Pan-Africanism. And uh, Kwame devoted uh, the last 30 years of his life trying to build the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. And we're continuing, we are the inheritors and continuators of that work. And we, and we encourage you to come out and, and, and support and make your contribution to the struggle to achieve Pan-Africanism. Because it's going to take the masses of African people organized and working together uh, to bring this about. And, uh, and also working together uh with uh with Afri- uh w- you know with uh, other oppressed people around the world in order to eradicate imperialism in all of its forms and on that note we're going to take a station break and when we come back we will continue this reflection on Richmond's first annual pan-african international festival of culture and unity with brother haki brother Afton. Sister Celine, Brother Bo Guy, and Brother John. We'll be right back. You're listening to Africa on the Move.
Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir, Mr. Robinson. First of all, it's an honor to talk to you and the Cleveland organization. And uh, it was a beautiful, very, very beautiful experience. Um, my reflection pertaining to the uh, Pan-African uh, Festival. Um, it's an honor to be so, and I know you have years to come. Uh, what, what I gathered there, it was very beautiful to to hear um, true, true information coming from sources that, that a lot of our uh, people that live in the culture of Africa, in different countries was there to share their true experiences, not advertisement, no media. I mean, these was true, true experiences. They was there, you know, from from the the culture of Africa and sharing their true experiences between two struggles. They was there to share the information and how they recover. Also, too, uh, the last port. Um, during the time, a lot of people know, even though we're in the music industry, a lot of people uh, um, don't understand pertaining to the uh, the hip hop rap movement, um, it just didn't start with Jay Z or the rappers today. You know, this was going way back when a lot of rappers were rapping back on the street corners years ago. Um, I don't know if some people may be familiar with uh Yo Scott Heron, you see. And uh so I had a privilege to speak to one of the uh, last ports was at the event and he mentioned that he, their group, was way before Yo Scott Heron. So that's even way back. You know, but it was just amazing to hear that 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 that, that the African poetry um, that was real, and the experiences that a lot of the people that lived in these two countries, Africa, to share their struggles, um, true information that was there to share upon the public that particular day. And also, it was an honor to 
allowed, you know, our record organization to share a few of our artists to come perform um, a part to support the culture on a musical note. You know, even though we hear about the struggles and we hear about the culture activity, but everybody have a chance to express the, the roots of rhythm through music today from the past was there and representing our company to be there. So it was an honor to do so and we look forward to coming. And also just a special note of credit, uh, we always solicit and allow artists to sign autographs and to the, the, the people that was there and uh, to recollect that we do have all the signatures and emails that we will be releasing music very shortly, less than a few weeks. Just want to let the public know uh, on, on, we always solicit freely to allow artists to be promoted and share their music and organization with the organization. It was a very beautiful experience. Brother Oshaw, can you just brief a little bit, talk just a little bit about Timber Records. What is Timber Records and how can people support it? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Very briefly. Again, like I say, um, um, back in 1990, a lot of things was birthing. It had a lot of production companies, all type of things were going on. But here in the city of Richmond, uh, state of Virginia, uh, we had the first African um, governor, Lieutenant Governor um, Douglas, the Honorable Douglas L. Wilder, he was governor at birth. And during that time, um, the vision of timber production records birthed at the same time, that period. Of course, a few other things. So what we did, the whole synopsis is that uh, over the years, we experienced that in the music industry, uh, a lot of the South, some people call North Carolina the South, Virginia, the Bible Belt, a lot of gospel, good Gospel from Shirley Caesar down Durham, Mike Cloud, not just them, but a lot of southern roots of music is on the south, rich music. So what a lot of people do over the years, they fly to the West Coast, which is such companies such as Warner Brothers, Burbank, and a couple other, you know, Sunset Boulevard, et cetera. Uh, terminology used to use years ago a phrase that say, go west, young man, go west, go west, young man. The reason for that terminology is that a lot of the East Coast, Southern talent always fly west because most of your entertainment companies are in the West Coast, such as California, including New York and other cities. But other than that, we 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 gave birth the company. Nineteen ninety came to be a big influence musically as a channel to to take a lot of the East Coast talent gather as a network here in the East Coast region south, and we was one of the first uh, multicultural record and music publishing company. And so in that way. The terminology kind of changed a little bit. Uh, we took the proposal to Douglas Wilder and showed them uh, pertaining to our outlet, Birth of Vision. And what he did, he endorsed it. He sent us some previous letters back in 1990, State Corporation Commission, et cetera, including his son, uh, Larry Wilder. I think Larry Wilder was with the House of Representatives during that time. And uh, so they shared the endorsement, et cetera. So he endorsed it that we was one of the first upon the southern coast, east coast, first multicultural uh, record music publishing company. So instead of going west, a lot of people come east, come south, you know. So make a long story short that we made that little legendary mark. Um, we do record production, um, music publishing, copyrights, music licenses, um, distribution, manufacturing, product, concert, touring. Um, we, we just released a movie called The Music Business. Uh, we have it online, et cetera. Um, Music business, we got an investment group, and uh, we got a, a music university we're starting to share a lot of the public, not just the music theory, but give them the business of music all in one. So any other information, they can contact Timbo Records at uh, corporate number 804-307-0693, 804-307-0693, 
and the email T I M B R E L R E C O R D S B M I at Gmail dot com. And uh of course you can go on Google, uh YouTube, pull up just Timber Records, you see all the live performances, etc. And uh we can be able to service it. So you know, like I said, we they consider us like the new Motown. Uh, we had a magazine did a story upon our company, and uh, they consider us to be consider like to be like a new Motown. So uh, we're very multicultural oriented, not just based on one race, you know, people, but multicultural, you know. And uh, we like it that way. It's a blessing, and um, of course, an honor to collaborate with you too, Mr. Rob. Your organization over the years, we see amazing work that a lot of people need to be. Uh, involved with their culture and expose the culture, you know, to the world. Hey, brother, brother Timula, we like to thank you, brother Upshaw, for your contribution to the program. We wish to intense and continue to work together, and we thank you for your participation to today's program. We thank you. Most of it. we thank okay, you too, right. Mr. Upshaw. All right, today what we're gonna do right now, we in our Final countdown. We are discussing a reflection or doing a reflection on Richmond First Pan African International Festival of Culture and Unity. And what we like to do is we like to take each one of our participants, tell them to take their time, give us a two to three minutes final summation of their final thoughts on the reflection of this particular international fair. But what we're going to do right now, we would like to go to Sister, I think, if she's still with us. We have with us, I think, we, Sister Celine. We're coming back to you, Sister Celine. We'd like for you, Sister Celine, share with our listening audience again how they can support you and your organization. And um, you'll find the thoughts. Sister Celine. Oh, I wanted to give um, a little bit of a contribution first. Oh, I wanted to say that uh, there is an African international business or that I was uh, head over the internet. And I believe that that is a tool which can really unite uh, Africa in that international business market can function well that Africans move freely in Africa without any obstruction will foster the unity of Africa. That is a very big uh, achievement in that uh, African international business or marketing takes place if it is established that will bring unity in Africa. Um, I want to say that uh, my organization, my phone number is uh, plus two three seven six seven seven three three two one four five. I repeat my phone number again. If any person want to call me or any information or anything, you call plus two three seven. Six seven seven three three two one four five. My email hey. address is Naya Celine at yahoo.co.uk. Naya is N A Y A H C 
Selene, C-E-L-I-N-E, at yahoo.co.uk. If anybody wants to contact us, that's the number that they can use, and the email that you can email us for any information, any inquiry about our organization. We'll be able to give you. I work with the women, women of the grassroots, trying, struggling to empower them, or making them become entrepreneurs. It's always good to train people how to catch fish and not always to give them fish. If we are well empowered, we'll be able to fish for ourselves. So we need a lot of empowerment. We need training. We need equipment. We need material and uh, financial support. And we can also support our children going back to school. For example, I have some children who need to register for the first school at Commonwealth South. For now, I don't even have the money to pay for the registration for these children to write for for their final exam. So we are really in need. And we need people to support us. I'm so happy for African Awareness Party. And I'm so happy to be a part of that organization to be connected uh, with you people over there. I'm so happy. But Ali, I want to say that we keep up. Uh, let African Awareness uh, Organization and the African People's Party. I want to say bravo to you people. I want to say that you continue and may the Lord continue to water you what are you, what are you, as you keep on struggling for Mother Africa. Thank you very much. And thank God for making me to be a part this morning. We are in the morning. I'm talking, I'm feeling sleepy because it's my sleeping time. It's a struggle, my sister, but, you know, where there's struggle, there's always progress. So we'd like to thank you for your contribution to today's program and for our listening audience and particularly women organization. If you wanted to adopt an excellent women organization who's about empowering African women and women in general, please contact our sister Celine. They need your support. Next we go back and stay at home. We go to Brother Bogai. Brother Bogai. Your final thoughts for the night, and how can it help you in your movement? Brother Go Bodai, Bogai, your final thoughts, and how can it help support your movement? Oh, can you repeat that again for me? Yes, we want you to, your final thoughts on how can it help support you in your work? Well, uh, uh, that that is a good question. Uh, thank you so much again. Um well, if they can have this very clear, they can go to website, quickdemocraticmajority.org. They can donate to help for the campaign, to help the people of South Sudan. We are demanding the president to step down because the man has already created a genocide and civil war in the country. The African people have killed themselves because of the tribal called ethnic issues. We believe in African organization. We believe the African are one. 
and the fan Africanism, which we see ourselves as African, not the tribes or Zulu or Yoruba or Dinka or no, that is not the issue, but the African corrupt leadership always try to use excuses by using ethnic uh, tribe against tribe in order for them to create chaos. So we believe in our party that this man has to step down. And actually, I'm, my mission, I'm going to South Sudan by next year, and we're looking for funds to support my campaign and my team so we can be able to demand this man to step aside so the African people can move forward. That is the message that I have for now. And my campaign team, we are looking forward to go to South Sudan by New Year. So that's all I can say. We're looking for uh, financial support. If anyone can support us, we would appreciate that. And thank you so much. Thank you, Brother both for your contribution to today's program. And now go to our brother John. Brother John, you'll find it to us for tonight and how can the people support your work and activities? So I've been thinking more. You asked a question about our work and how it relates to the Pan-African struggle. So I have a better example. So this was maybe 15 years ago and one of the members of Woodbridge Workers he was a young uh, Totonaco man, a family man. Uh, he had two young children, and he had done his laundry and was coming back. He lived in the trailer park, and on the way there, he was ambushed by two young black men, teenagers, who uh, had, had indicated they were out to, to uh, beat up uh, a, a Mexican, and something happened, and they ended up shooting him and killing him so the situation was very bad because uh woodbridge is it's is and even then was a very much of a mixed community uh, low-income white black and increasingly immigrant community so tensions were very high so we reached out uh i reached out with some of my african-american allies and we went to uh, the AME Church, Manassas First AME Church, and talked to a sympathetic pastor there, uh, Ronald Boykin. And we explained the situation. And so Ronald uh, went to his congregation, raised the money to pay for the body to be sent back to his family in Mexico, which cost about $5,000. And not only that, but uh, the two or three days later, we had a, a memorial, and uh, the black religious community turned out, and several black ministers, led by Reverend Boykin, spoke at a Latino church at his memorial service and pledged solidarity. And so what could have been a very bad, bad situation was turned into a positive situation, and out of that came a much healthier attitude between the black community and the immigrant community and working together. So, so that would be a more concrete example of the work we do. So thank you for asking that. If uh, people want to help us, we have a GoFundMe page. If you go on GoFundMe, look for Woodbridge Workers Committee, our next big project, around the holidays we'll be providing toys to a couple hundred of the children that live in the trailer parks. And these are, you know, children of all backgrounds, uh, African and immigrant and, and uh, poor whites. 
So uh, if people want to help, go to our GoFundMe page, search Woodbridge Workers Committee. And thanks again for all the work that you've done and all the work that you've done over the years. It, it truly is an honor to, to be able to work with you. We'd like to thank you as well, John, for the work that you have done and continue to do and for your contribution to today's program. We thank you as well. Next, we make our transition to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, it will find the thoughts for tonight. Yes, it's been a very interesting uh, show, very informative. Um, it's good when people can get together and and uh, raise consciousness around it around the various issues we face, and uh, I think that's good. And uh, I thank you for having me on the show. And have a good night. All right. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. We now will go with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your reflections or your final thoughts for tonight? Yes. Um, I, I uh, commend... Uh, you and the African Awareness Association for pulling off Richmond's first uh, Pan-African International Festival of Culture and Unity. And uh, I thought it was a very positive event, very enlightening, uh, uh, an excellent networking opportunity. And I think if people, the most important thing people need to take away from this is that the 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 issues that unite us are greater than the issues that divide us. In addition to a common culture, history, and destiny, we have we face common enemies uh, to our uh, freedom, and we have to organize in order to in order to defeat those. Uh, to learn more about uh, my organization, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, people can visit <clears throat> our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org or call us at 202-246-4896. Thanks. Thank you, Anthony, for your contribution to today's program and your continued work to help move our people forward. Brother Haki, your final summation for tonight and also the announcement of the event that's coming up on November 15th by the All African People Revolutionary Party, GC. Brother Haki, the mic is yours. Sure. A tribute and celebration of Brother Kwame Toure would take place Friday, November 15th. Uh, this, excuse me, this program will take place between 6.30 and 9 p.m. It will take place at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church, uh, 1720 Mechanicsville Turnpike in Richmond. Um, for further information, please contact us at area code 202-246-4896 or area code 804-644-5836 or email us at info at a-aprp-gc Dot org, and we encourage people to come out and pay homage to this to this great individual. My final statement, Brother Africa, is that, you know I think Brother Jihad said it best. I mean, he talked about in terms of the urgency in terms of reaching young people. One thing is very very clear in terms of society: the level of oppression, uh, the level of injustice, is actually uh, uh, 
increasing leaps and bounds. And the question is, what does that mean for the future generation of African people, you know, in the context of, you know, North America? It doesn't bode well if we can innovate some means in terms of energizing young people in terms of getting involved in terms of the struggle. Because without their understanding in terms of the importance of the struggle, then it means that the forces of uh, injustice uh, become that much stronger. So we have a work cut out for us in terms of creating the, that conditions that uh, make it favorable for young people to actually get involved and in wanting to know. Uh, of course, when you get the reality is that when you talk about the tremendous amount of propaganda and the, this whole pleasure principle that exists in society, young people are more uh, excited about you know uh, sporting events, partying, and, and those kind of things. So we got an awesome challenge in terms of getting people to young people in particular to understand. You know, to those things aside, that there's some serious business that has to be attended to. And without some understanding in terms of the nature of that serious business, it means that uh, your future is in peril. So we got to get busy in terms of creating those conditions. And having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. All right, I'd like to thank you, Brother Aki, for your contribution to today's program and the work that you continue to do to help move our people forward. And to our listening audience, you've been listening to Africa on the Move. I'm Brother Africa. As always, we try to come and bring you information that you can use as a tool for liberation. We also try to introduce you to, to, introduce you to organizations, because we know the greatest weapon for the oppressed is organization. We must be organized. An unorganized force cannot be an organized force. So if we're going to defeat our enemy, we must be organized. That's one of the lessons that Brother Kwame Ture has left us and often told us to do, and we must not continue to make that mistake of, of being not organized. Again, we too would like to encourage you to join the All African People Revolutionary Party GC on Friday, November 15th from 6.30 p.m. to 9.00 p.m. at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church, 1720 Mechanville Turnpike, Richmond, Virginia, as we give a tribute and celebration to our brother, Kwame Ture, formerly known as Togley Carmichael. Every African in this region should be there. Come help give our thanks to our brother. And the best way we can thank our brother is let's build this party, the party of the AAPIPGC, the continuator of the work of Kwame Ture, Sekou Ture, and Kwame Nkrumah. Africans, we hope to see you there. And like always, until next week, Let's continue to subscribe to go forward, Apple, backwards, novel. You've been listening to Africa on the Move, and we're going to leave you with a little message by Kwame Ture, followed by some music of liberation. Again, Africa on the Move is a community project of the African Awareness Association. Any common views, you can write us at African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. Or you can write us at Africa on the Move 2 at Gmail, directed to the radio station. We hope to hear from you. Until then, let's keep on moving on. Victory is certain. The forces arrayed against us are, and I use the word most carefully, formidable of this brother and he's still blazing a trail even to them so he has an eternal flame his flame don't burn out some of y'all flames burn out 
His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country. Our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Ture. Brother Kwame Ture, as he comes down. Let's give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Ture, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother, Brother Kwame Ture, who's been on the fire line, who shook up America in 1966. We holler, black power, 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 black power. Black power, 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 what time is it? All right. Brother Kwame Ture. Let's give it up. Brother Kwame Ture. We want to thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. And uh, there are three members of uh, three other members of our central committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here. Yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, 
This brother who has uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our Central Committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, of course, we are always uh, honored to be with uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories but one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California, revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality. And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army, very costly. But since it was on instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. Those who participated in it were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellious, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland, nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now, for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious, but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, 
but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious. Look, you want freedom anyway. Let's be serious. Let's sit down. Let's plan it. Let's wait protracted war. And let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization. Something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt, and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt, the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist, National Baptist Association, a convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust, the people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. 
organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers. Yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day when speaking to a sister who, uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, so you, when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, are you going to get that? I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter going to get it. But I'm working for it. <coughs> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different, they have such different tastes, such different ta-la-la-la, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. Now what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. 
If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be all of us so many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have us say, just run away from the truth. We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference, we said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America, and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it, and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African Americans. They did it. We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans, of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. <laughs> and certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. You African, yeah, where you were born? Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born? Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born? Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interests. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that they're Africans born in America, Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, it's a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. 
I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news. Here they come. World news. Today, President Clinton said... <clears throat> world news. Today, Newt Greenwich said... World news. Those who's running for president can <laughs> It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. <laughs> no, nobody played but them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they're incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside in the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there on a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana. I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the... Uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? He doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to the university. People who couldn't vote died so they become mayors. It is these pure poor that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. What's their movement? The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew as a little girl, I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know. I just made it up. Does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. 
I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who is he? I said, he the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is the job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the million and more march were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. <laughs> quickly conscious. And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the stick team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. Moving to the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibilities to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This United Front is a very simple thing now, a very simple task. All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party has been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a united front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time. This was in 1972. Uh, 
Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan? The one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was jo I'm sorry, Whitney Young had died, it's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Push. Dorothy Hyde, the uh, National Council of Negro Women. Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core, and we represented the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something and the enemy will knock it down. And you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together. A lot of work. A lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> and we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. We accepted defeat, we licked our wounds, we pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life. Really has, really has. The most recent one was I have a brother who's in jail in uh, Florida for killing a white policeman. Uh, this brother has been isolated in jail. Nobody writes him, uh, so he has a lot of problems. and. Uh, his father and I knew each other from struggling days back in the 60s in Dayton. Asked me to write him. I wrote him. So you know when brothers are in jail, they ain't got nothing to do. So he writes me a letter every day. And uh, I respond to all his letters because he's in jail. You know. And uh, last year, when uh, speaking on telephone, I told him, I think I have everything careful. I I'm going to speak to uh, Bill Kunstler, and I'm sure Bill Kunstler will look at the case. In March of last year, I had lunch with Bill Kunstler and, uh, in New York here, and Bill Kunstler agreed to take the case. And he said, but you know, I'm just a little bit busy now. Give me about two or three months, and then send me a letter, and I'll pick up the case. So I waited two or three months, and when I wrote the letter, before the letter arrived, uh, Kunstler was dead. So death has robbed me of many uh, political victories in life and created more work for me, but I'm a revolutionary. I accept it because I know my death is going to create a lot of work for others. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's robbed me of a lot. The Honorable Elijah's, uh, Mohammed's death robbed me of a, robbed the All-African Peace Revolution Party of a golden chance to uh, create the United Front. Of course, you know, when the Nation of Islam came up, there was first uh, Wallace Dean Mohammed, the son of the uh, Honorable Elijah Mohammed, and then, you know, there was a little uh, discussion, and uh, finally, uh, 
Minister Louis Farrakhan decided to uh, return with the original uh, theories and actions of the Honorable Elijah Mohammed. When Minister Louis Farrakhan first came out, of course, now I'm blessed to let you know, I've known Minister Louis Farrakhan for over 30 years and worked with him for over 30 years. Of course, we're not in the press all the time, but we're in contact all the time. And uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and I discussed much, step by step. Of course, the only thing I had in my mind was the African United Front. That's all I want. And uh, Minister Farrakhan said, okay, he sees it, he understands it, but he needs to get a little bit stronger. Fine. Uh, 1982, I, our party made an assessment, and uh, we said, okay, the Nation of Islam is strong enough now to do the work for the African United Front. We cannot do it, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, because... Uh, from the time they see us, we tell them we're revolutionary, we're socialist, we ain't bending, we're anti-Zionist, you can do what you want, that's your problem. You understand? So we don't bend. But the Honorable uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he's charming and, you know, he's sentimental. Minister can quote Bibles so he can sit down with preachers and all these others, etc. So after observing his movements, uh, the African People's Revolutionary Party mandated me to go and uh, visit... Uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and to give him the uh, files of the African United Front and tell him that it was his responsibility to call the front. Of course, it was a task that I enjoyed undertaking. I hadn't seen him in some time and uh, I had a beautiful day. We spent the entire day at his house there in Chicago. You know, he just uh, separated uh, from uh, uh, Dean Wallace Mohammed and his force had been coming back. And uh, I took for him some old copies of Mohammed Speaks. Now, if you look at the old copies of Muhammad Speaks, every middle page that you open had two black hands reaching across the oceans calling for a united front. Every, uh, every issue of Muhammad Speaks. We must know our history, and we will not, never be ungrateful to those who taught us. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad has taught me an awful lot, and I know he's taught our people an awful lot, and for that alone, I'll be forever grateful to him. Minister Farrakhan agreed to take the program. He had no choice. I told him, this is your program. This is what your leader says you're supposed to do. Here, my leader is your leader. And you say you're following his footsteps, you know, and he was getting ready to do it. He didn't do it. Here's your chance. You're supposed to do what he didn't do, you know. So, of course, Farrakhan had no choice. He had to accept it. We were well prepared. Everything was in proper order to have, finally, once again, our African United Front. By... 19, uh, when was uh, Jesse first talking about running for president? Well, 1984. Well, 83 was announced. When did uh, Farrakhan make the alliance with him? November 83. So by 82, I left me. I went back to Africa. Everything was moving. I was in contact with uh, Minister Farrakhan. Our party people were in contact, feeding us step by step. I came back uh, in early 1983. I met with uh, Minister Farrakhan. I explained to him uh, precisely the steps that we thought we could help in bringing the African United Front together. After some time, he asked that we have a meeting late in the year, probably around September, October. I'm telling the truth exactly what was said at the meeting. Minister Farrakhan said to me, he said, uh, at that time, uh, Jesse Jackson had declared he was going to run for presidency, and he was under a lot of threats, you know. And I certainly thought that some crazy whitey was going to pop him, you know. 
But I have no problem with it. My life is on the line all the time. I put my life on the line for one thing. You put your life on the line for another thing. I ain't got no problem with it. You know, so Minister Louis Farrakhan came to see me. He said, you know, and he's very clever, Minister Farrakhan. He's very clever. When he's already, he wants to soften up, he comes, he always plays that violin for you. Oh, Brother Kwame, you're my younger brother. But you know, you are so profound in political analysis. You surpass us all that even though I am your older brother, I must come and seek advice from you. <laughs> he's rough, you know, he's rough on that violin. <laughs> he sings some sweet songs on that violin. <laughs> so, of course, after seeking my advice, he came to seek my advice. He said, I want to make a decision. I said, what's that decision? He said, I want to put the FOI at uh, the disposition of Jesse Jackson to protect him. I said, well, if you want to do that, that's your decision. He said, well, you don't seem enthusiastic about it. I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> he said, well, uh, Jesse Jackson might get killed. I said, he probably will get killed. He said, don't you think we need to protect him? I said, that's your decision. It's your FOI. You know, he said, so now he saw that it was getting serious. He said, uh, you know, he's clever. He's clever. Because he'll switch on you fast. You know, if, not, if you don't switch with him, you'll be in back gear while he's in front gear. You're already saying yes when you start, thought you were saying no. Yeah, he's rough. He said, well, uh, I bet if you were uh, being hounded and attacked by uh, people, you'd want the FOI to protect you. I reminded him very slowly and very carefully, Minister Farrakhan, when I was elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first public meeting I had as chair was a meeting with the Honorable Elijah Mohammed in his house in Chicago where I spent 15 hours. In fact, it was here that I met Muhammad Ali for the first time. This is way back. This is before, well, all you old people, so I was before you were born. We were talking about 1966 here, easily. 30 years ago, yeah. At the end of the meeting, of course, you know I'm a young man. I'm, I'm 26 years old at this time, you know, 26. I've heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad all my life. What am I going to say to this man? This man used to raise me up, you understand? This man taught me things, gave me courage. I said, he's saying that on the radio? Is he crazy? Yeah, he's a white devil. That's what I said. There ain't nothing but white devils. That's what they, yeah. Yes. He'd tell the truth right out there. He wouldn't buy this town for nothing. You know, and uh, I reminded uh, Honorable Elijah, uh, the Minister Farrakhan, I said, at the end of the day, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad looked at me. I was sitting directly across from his table. He said, son, he said, the devil wants you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, the devil is out to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, you must be careful. I said, yes, sir, I'll be very careful all my life. I've been working in a, a dying, a mine pit among the enemy, and I'm older now. I have more experience, so... He said, they're mean. You know, I said, yes, sir, I know they're mean. He said, they're going to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, so, son, I'm going to put the FBI at your, the FOI at your disposition. Everywhere you go, I'm going to send out an order that the FOI must protect you. Now, you know, this was really too much for me, you know. So I started, I said, well, sir, thank you, you know, but you know, the FOI is so busy. I'm so busy. I'm running here and there. This will be such a task for them, really. I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it, sir. And I, you know, I go through all this humble pie about thank you, but I don't need it. You know what he said? He said, son, I wasn't asking you. That's just what he told me. And if you go and look at pictures in the past, you see everywhere I go, the FOI was there protecting me from the 60s. You will look and you will see that. 
So I reminded this to Minister Louis Farrakhan. I reminded him of it. And I said, Minister Farrakhan, the FOI will protect me, but I promise you they will never protect me because I want to be President of the United States of America. They might protect me because I want to rip up America, but never because I want to be President of America. Well, he saw that uh, his clever trick didn't go so well. So he backed up again. He said, well, uh, what do you think about the alliance? I said, it's a great mistake. He said, why? I said, because uh, Jesse Jackson is a Democrat first and foremost. The Democratic Party jumps to the tunes of the Zionists. While the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was a confrontational organization and confronted Zionism outright, the first place I read about the Palestinian struggle in this country was in the Mohammed Speaks newspaper. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed taught me about Palestine when no left-wing paper in this country did. And they talk about nationalism is chauvinism. Look at them. I saw pictures of Malcolm X shaking the hands of PLO representatives when the PLO was first organized in 1964 in Mohammed Speaks. In Mohammed Speaks. Therefore, I told him, I said, the Zionists, they hate us, but they know you the first. <laughs> so what I'm worried about is when they spoil the union and it splits, you understand, which side of the fence you going to be on? Because I know Jesse going to be with the Zionists. Because that's the Democratic Party. I'm just brutally honest with you. I'm telling you exactly what was said between us. We had a very frank discussion. After that discussion, I told him, what about the African United Front? He said, it's still good. Of course, me, myself, if I knew would do the thing with Jesse, it was problems. But in spite of obstacles, you must do your work. In spite of obstacles, you must persevere. I said, well, I want you to meet uh, Jesse ja Jex uh, John Jacobs of the Urban League. He said, I've never met him. I said, I'd like you to meet him. He said, you can arrange a meeting? Will he meet with me? I said, yeah, I can arrange a meeting. He'll meet with you. I arranged a meeting at Johnny Jacobs' uh, office here in New York, in Manhattan. The first time they met each other, I just sat in the background, talk, talk, talk. So well did our meeting go that Minister Louis Farrakhan and Johnny Jacobs signed a letter that day issuing a call for a united front among the political organizations in this country. We have it in our files. When the time comes, we will demonstrate this. The Urban League has a copy, Farrakhan has a copy, and Major Thatcher, Thatcher, Hatcher, Hatcher, <laughs> Hatcher from Gary has a copy because at that time he was head of the mayors and we were working with him, of course. Uh, of course, I went back to Africa. It didn't take me long before I heard all this nonsense about gutter religion, Judaism, gutter, or dirty religion, or whatever, whatever, and uh, Jesse having to uh, split from Farrakhan, and you know what happened. Of course, I knew it would happen. But when we were with uh, Jacobs, Minister Farrakhan and myself, one of the things we agreed upon was that we must have the phone numbers of each other. They didn't even have each other's phone numbers. And we must have the house phone numbers. So that when we hear something on the radio that Farrakhan said this about Jacobs, before Jacobs attacks Farrakhan, Jacob will call Farrakhan and see if what the paper says is true. We agreed to this. We did agree to this.
Of course, this was not written in the letter. This was a verbal commitment. But we're brothers. We can't lie. And I'm a revolutionary. I can't lie to you. Of course, when Jesse Jackson uh, made his split and the Zionists once again with a nice plot did everything, Johnny Jacobs, without calling Minister Farrakhan to see if in fact he made the statement, what was the content in which the statement was made, wrote public articles condemning Minister Louis Farrakhan. Once again, Zionism had come to block and destroy the unity of the African community. We are not stopping. And the Million and More March puts us properly in a position to create a united front in this country of the political organizations, given some semblance of unity and creating some atmosphere of unity where we can come to organize our people. I must tell you, the major enemy to our unity is Zionism. I tell you this as a result of over 30 years of constant struggle to organize and unify our people. I know them every step of the way. They are the slimiest slime that imperialism has ever produced. They will do everything to keep us divided. Want to run our own concepts for us, teach us. They fight to teach our children. Isn't that nice of them? Quite liberal. Quite liberal. Their job is to keep us enslaved. Their job is to control us. So that while controlling us, American imperialism and the right wing and the racist wing will be venting all their rage on us and on nobody else. But uh, we who are determined <laughs> see victory even in death. <laughs> We're going to have a united front. Our party, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, has decided to direct its attention for the next three years into two major areas. In the 1960s, when COINTELPRO broke down and destroyed many organizations, and they did, they also destroyed coordination between organizations. Thus today, there is no coordination between organizations. And people come to think that the struggle in America is not like it was in the 60s. Why, America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. The people are more politically conscious. The conditions are worse. When you have falling conditions of rising consciousness, you've got to have an explosion. You've got to have it. Either it will be instinct, which will be revolt, or either be reasoned and organized, which will be revolution. But you can be sure you're going to have an explosion. We say the people's consciousness are rising more and more. Even movements that we never thought about in the 60s, like the women's movement, the ecology movement, they are spreading everywhere. The right wing in this country has made a proper shift. It no longer sees minorities as their major enemy, nor the left wing. It sees the U.S. government as their major enemy. America is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. Africans have a particular responsibility here
to the struggles of their people and to their future generations in directing this struggle to be nothing other than a revolutionary struggle. I mean this in every sense of the word. If you look throughout history, as a matter of fact, uh, two days ago I was in Ohio and a journalist asked me, what do you think is the greatest contribution that the Africans have made to America? I said, help to civilize it. <laughs> it's a fact. It's a fact. I know who I am. I know I'm equal to everybody else. They don't know it. They're the ones who have to be taught it, not me. Not me. So consequently, our job is to civilize America. If you look, this is exactly what we've been doing. Everywhere you see struggles for justice, you will see Africans out front, the first to die every time, in every battle. I mean, even go back to the American Revolution, Christmas Adams. Well, first to die, instead of fighting with the Indians and joining up with the Indians of whooping George Washington. That's what he should have done. And that's why we must rectify the error today. Of course, Chinese say if you make an error, you know it's an error, you don't correct the error, you've made your second error. We have to correct that error. We're always on the front lines. Look at the history of the labor movement. Africans everywhere on the front lines. Look at the peace movement. They try to make it look like a white movement, but I know it was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that gave the slogan, hell no, we won't go, and broke the draft in this country. And I know it was Martin Luther King who was the center of the peace movement in the anti-Vietnam War in this country. Once again, Africans up front in the fight for justice. Anywhere you look, you will see us up front. We're unconsciously up front. It is time for us to become consciously up front. This then is the task that we come to put before you, your responsibility. Every time we come here, we tell you this is our problem, this is our responsibility here. The capitalist system has but one job through its media, make the Africans irresponsible. Make them frivolous. Make them hate themselves make them have low esteem of themselves. Just in one word, keep them demobilized and ineffective and tools for us when we need to exploit them and to turn them against their own people. This is their plan. We have to counteract this. We have to counteract this. And the television does it 24 hours a day, non-stop. We who say we are conscious cannot speak of being tired. As a matter of fact, even as a young boy, I remember sometimes seeing my father. You know, it's true, they don't make men the way they used to make them because I'll never be the man he was. <laughs> I'll never do what he did. I can't even try. <laughs> but I would see my father coming very, very tired from working, and I'd say to him, why don't you rest? He says, when I die, I will have enough time to rest. Uh, so from him, I've learned that. I'm going to work myself to death for my people. Yeah, because I can't rest now. I'm going to work myself to death for my people. I know if I can't rest now, I know I'm going to rest. <laughs> and I'm not like Martin Luther King. He sang free at last. I'm going to sing, I'm so glad I laid this burden down. 
But until I lay it down, I ain't going to make one squeak about it. I'm going to carry it with my head up, just like my grandmother carried her head up on plantations. Your job as the conscious is to make our unconscious conscious of their unconscious movements. This can only be done in organization. This can only be done in organization. We repeat it over and over again. Every time you see an intelligent man, intelligent woman, they don't attack the enemy unless they have some force behind them. I sometimes look at our brothers who go to jail. By themselves, they think they're going to go to jail and take on the enemy. Me? I've been to jail many, many times in my life, all over the world. And every time I've been to jail, all I do is get one message out to one member, any member of my organization, and my task is finished. My job is finished. My organization knows I'm in jail. Either I get out, they find to get me out, they can't get me out, I'm organizing in jail. But I ain't got to worry about no courts, no judges, no lawyers. The organization going to do that. That's why you need organization. The police arrest me tonight. By the morning, I'm walking out of jail, and the police going to be in trouble. Yeah, because they're going to find, they're going to find, they're going to find, look here. Why don't you show you a little tactic? When America bombed Libya in 1986, a member of our Central Committee, then by the name of Bob Brown, we sent him quickly to Libya to see what was happening. He got an American passport. Now, if you got an American passport, you got the right to enter any European country and stay there for three months without a visa. You understand that? Now, these little Swiss people, because we had pictures of Gaddafi we wanted to show. We wanted to make sure we are in harmony with the work they were doing. So he had Gaddafi's pictures in his uh, briefcase. They stopped him, deported him, sent him back to France without even giving him a chance to make a telephone call. Could you imagine how crazy we were? We didn't know where the brother was. You understand? When he explained to us what happened, we had to teach the Swiss a lesson. So he gets a little lesson, no big problem. They arrested him on a Wednesday, on a Tuesday evening, deported him all that, and Wednesday, we got the news. Wednesday evening, we made a plan. On Thursday morning, we want everyone in the party to call comrades and allies and every friend they know and have them call the Swiss embassy non-stop ask them one question why did you arrest Bob Brown that's all the Swiss embassy did no work that Thursday none whatsoever at all and the act is a legal act quite legal we did it Thursday and Friday and then on Saturday we sent them a telegram anytime you see an African anywhere in the world coming to Switzerland and he has legal papers don't mess with him he might be Bob Brown, who represents Africans who've had clashes with American capitalism in over 267 cities. We're sure the Swiss don't want any of this action. Very simple. But he's got an organization. He didn't have to make one phone call. And when anybody else goes through Switzerland, they don't mess with us at all. And we told him, this is just the first level. You mess with us again, we take it to a higher level. And you mess with us again, we take it to a higher level. And we can do it because